Well, let's get going. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been getting into this concept of worship. And so to just break this down a little bit, we've been in this idea of identity crisis. Is that we have an identity crisis inside of the church, and we're trying to imagine or, or reimagine what the church should look like. And the problem we have today is when we look at this thing and we begin to look at what is church and what is the church, you have all these different opinions. And they all come from different people, and they come from different experiences, and they come from different things. And the question always comes back to is what should it look like? Not what does it look like, but what should it look like? Or what could it look like? Those are two questions because I think most of us would agree that where we are today is not where we're going to end up. You guys realize that this earth is a temporary thing, but eternity is a long time. Like, a long time. And this small, minuscule part of our lives here is where we focus all of our attention, but we really should be focused spiritually. We should be thinking eternally. Like, every day here impacts eternity, either for you or somebody around you. You think about that for a minute. Like, what happens in the moment that if your life was such a reflection of Christ, that you were daily having conversations with individuals about Christ? What happens? Well, eventually, you are going to lead somebody to Christ. Because action will beget success but if you don't do that what happens it's the same result only the bad side whatever you do has an impact in eternity which is crazy to think about because what do we think about the right now we think about well, what do i got to do today and the rest of the day what do i got to do tomorrow what's this week look like but we don't think is what can i have an impact on eternally today it's something we need to begin to consider. And the reason we st- we're talking about this is we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is, cr- is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So it seems as if there are two types of people, the old and the new. When you're in Christ, and it says, if anyone is, you become the new. And with that new, something transforms in your life. You were dead. You're now alive. So this new alive person should look different, talk different, sound different, act different. Their response to situation should be different. All guarded and looked through the lens, which is scripture. Is what do we do in this situation? How do we sound? But here's the problem. Is we don't think with eternity in mind. We think with right now in mind. Have you guys ever seen this experiment? They did this a few years ago. I think it was Harvard, but don't quote me on this. They took children and they put them in a room. And they set a marshmallow there. And they said, now listen, you can eat this if you want. But if you will wait 15 minutes and don't touch it, I'll give you another one. You'll get two. How many of them do you think actually waited? Very few. Now, they traced this. They originally did this, I think it was back in the 70s. They traced these same kids to see if they could have delayed gratification. As a child, what would that look like as an adult? And these people who were able to control themselves in the moment were wildly successful business people, investors, things like that. Because they realized they didn't have to have the latest and greatest right now. Because what they wanted was something greater. What they did is they looked at it and said, okay, I can wait 
because you're promising me too. It's 15 minutes. It's not that big of a deal. But what do we as a culture want? We want it now. You ever sat through a drive-thru? If you're not through in four minutes, what are you? Upset and hungry. It's not right. But that's how we, that's how we treat everything. We also do that spiritually and biblically. We look at things and we want immediate results, but we don't think about is what were the daily things that took for someone to get there. And so, like, we have a church today that Romans 8 sums up. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is in enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So what are we talking about? We have a carnally minded church because we are too tied up with what we want, feel. We want to feel good. We want it to sound good. We will spend millions of dollars in the church today making sure the building looks a certain way, the sound equipment's a certain way. We got the latest and greatest technology. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to draw in a crowd. And can you accomplish that using those metrics? Of course you can. People are drawn to cool things. But are you changing lives using that? Not necessarily. You can't say no, but you can't say yes either. It could happen. But when we're always thinking carnally, we will always respond carnally. Now what happens if we begin to think spiritually, or what I say is biblically? Then our lives begin to change, and we realize that this is not where we draw the loss to. This, y'all, is where we draw the loss to. This is where the body of believers come in and are equipped to do the work of the ministry. That's what this is for. It's a time of teaching. It's a time of worship. It's a time of prayer. It's a time of those things. But then what happens? The temple of God goes out to the people, to the masses, to the lost. Now, we'll build upon that in a minute. But the reason we don't think like that is because we are carnally minded. Now, what do we think when we think of carnal? We think of sick stuff, you know, perverts, all that kind of stuff, you know. But carnally minded means we're thinking opposite of God. Not necessarily sinful, but not in God's best way. Now, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We've, we've reflected on some of this multiple times. It says, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who is present uh, in presence and lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty for in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So, these things, the weapons we use, do what? Protect our understanding of the knowledge of who God is. All of them are coming against him. Go out in the world. If you go out and just ask people their viewpoints on God, you will get a myriad of answers. Tons of them. It's, it's unbelievable. And then when you ask them, where did you get this from? Most of the time, it's like, well, I just feel. That's the number one arching answer. I just feel like if God is real, this is how he would respond. And you know why they think that? Because if they were God, that is how they would respond. And what have we just done? We brought God down to our level. We've made God look just like us. Listen, I'm looking at you, and you're looking at me, and if any of us are God, we're in trouble. All right? 
the thing is, is that we begin to do this. It's no different. I just had this conversation two weeks ago, okay? Somebody has gotten into these things called crystals. Now, I've dealt with this before. And they talk about how these crystals will give them energy. And what they do is they'll set them out in the reflection of the moon, and it draws in energy, and it pulls it in, and it brings them energy, and it gives them peace in their life, and all this other stuff. And I'm like, how do you know that? Does the crystal tell you that? Did the crystal say, you know, if you set it out in the moon, we're going to do well. What happens? They, they bring these things, they feel something, and they, maybe they are feeling something. But does it mean it's coming from the crystal? No, it could be gas. Could be anything. But we're making assumptions and we have no metric. Now you try to falsify that. How do you do that? How do you prove them wrong? I don't know either. You see, that's where we are. We're coming against these ideas of who God is. And this is where we came to this point. Is that we have to be able to answer four fundamental questions. Every believer has to be able to answer these. Who is God? Who am I in relationship to Him? How do we worship Him? And ultimately, who is my enemy? And so when we talked about who is God, that is not an easy question to answer. But the only way we can describe God is how God has revealed himself to mankind. And God has revealed himself to mankind inside of his word. We learn his names, his characteristics, and the way he behaves. The expectation we have on how God should respond in every situation should not be how you think it is, but how he said it will be. It's the idea where, you know, God works in mysterious ways. That's a load of crap. That's not a biblical statement because he doesn't. We have a predictable pattern of which God will uh, work every single time. So we're not up here praying like, boy, I sure hope God answers this one. I hope this is how he wants to do it. I don't know. How can you pray in faith if you don't know how God will respond? How can you come to a God in faith who's bipolar and we don't know what he's going to do? You can't. It's logically impossible. So you begin to understand who God is, but that strictly comes from how he's revealed himself, not how you want him to be. And then ultimately, who am I in relationship with him? First of all, who am I is his child. I am no longer myself. I now belong to him. My life is not my own. So it's not just who am I, but whose am I. I belong to him. Therefore, my life should be a reflection of him. In fact, I should just do what he wants, shouldn't I? You had kids, some of you. Don't you just wish they do what you want? Yeah, don't we all? I think God made teenagers to just get back at us. Because here you've made something in your own image that won't do anything you tell it to do. Just so we can kind of feel like what he feels like at times. We have to know who we are and whose we are. If we are not our own and God has made us and he owns us and he's redeemed us, therefore my life should be a reflection of who he is. So you have the separation that took place, just like through the Old Testament, the separation of peoples. You had the Jews to the Gentiles, then you had them come together, and then what happened? You got the sheep from the goats, the unbelievers versus the believers. And then you drill down even further, you've got the fruitful versus the unfruitful. You know you can be saved and do nothing? Absolutely, it happens all the time. So whose am I also matters. What I do matters. But the third part we've been on and we'll continue here is how do we worship God? Do you realize God has a way in which he wants to be worshipped? Do you realize that anything that you do is not necessarily worship just because you call it so? There is a way in which God intends us to worship. And ultimately, we should be what was known as an extravagant worshiper. 
is somebody who is so immersed in the presence and spirit of God that every moment of our life is a reflection of this worship, this outpouring we have to him. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. We can you just recap this a bit. Verse 7, remember those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away about with very strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace and not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we, here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer a, the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So now, as we get into this, we begin to look at this from an Old Testament perspective. Understanding that the Old Testament is the foundation of which the New is built upon. And when he says, we have an altar, that those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. He's talking about something very specific. As I've taught before, is when you guys begin to read any passage, the first thing you have to ask is who wrote it. And in this case, it's my opinion, it's Paul, he didn't sign it, but I think it's him. Be whoever you want, doesn't matter. Second part is, who did he write it to? And he wrote it to the Hebrews, which is the Jewish people, which means if you want to understand this, you need to understand how they thought. And in this case, to catch the context of any passage in the book of Hebrews, you have to read the entirety of the book of Hebrews. So when he talks about those who serve the tabernacle, he is talking very specifically about the priesthood. And they have an altar from which they perform sacrifices. But he says, we have an altar that they have no right to eat from. Well, why is that? Because they are not of the correct order anymore. They come from the line of Aaron. We come from the line of what? Melchizedek. We're in there with Jesus as high priest and priest with him. The blood is brought into the sanctuary. The high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood. I'm in verse 12. He suffered outside the gate. What sacrifice are we referring to? We're referring to the burnt offering. We'll come back to that. He says, so therefore, so because of what Jesus did and because of what they have done, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, the sin of the people put on that sacrifice. For we have no continuing city, we seek one to come. Therefore, by him, by whom? Jesus. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. What you learned last week, if you didn't already know, is the sacrifice of praise is not a metaphor. It is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. There were five offerings that were given in the Old Testament. There were more, but these were the main ones. There were two that were mandatory, there were three that were voluntary. The two mandatory ones were the sin and the guilt offering or the trespass offering. It was required by them. This is what sought atonement. This is what would cleanse the people. But the voluntary ones they could bring if they wanted to. The burnt offering, the grain offering, or the peace or thanksgiving offering. Sometimes it's called a praise offering, whatever. And they would bring these in and they would give them because they're so grateful to God. This is their outflow of what they are doing. 
God is so good to us, I am bringing this voluntarily to him. I don't have to do it. I am choosing to do it. Do you realize that by bringing a burnt offering, a peace offering, a thanksgiving offering, it did not make them any more right with God? Had nothing to do with that. It did not cleanse them. Had nothing to do with that. You had to do the other ones to be cleansed. This was out of a thankful heart. They gave the sacrifice of praise. And what does he say? Therefore, verse 15, by him, Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. Did anybody bring a goat today? Yoli? You would be the one I'd turn to. No, we didn't. Why is that? Because we don't sacrifice this way. We don't bring offerings this way. What does he say? That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. How do we bring that today? We don't have to kill nothing. Thank God. Because there's one person in this room we'd all be leaning on. Right, Yoli? <laughs> the thing is, is that we voluntarily, with our lips, bring thanks to God. Every word you speak is a reflection of your thankfulness to something. You can't be thankful for anything without by happenstance, being thankful to something. It's just the way it works naturally. So the words you speak are either bringing life or they're bringing death, but ultimately you're a reflection of God's goodness, whether you're showing it or not. So when we come together and we sing these songs and these things, we are doing that. We are giving thanks to God. It's the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. But are we doing it because we have to? No. We do it voluntarily. We do it at home. We say these words. So what I want you to see here is you've got to understand something. Many times, something that was taking place physically in the Old Testament has a spiritual counterpart in the New because we don't give sacrifices anymore. You see this in several places. You see how spiritually things take place. One way that we could talk about would be the Passover sacrifice. Jesus ultimately fulfilling that and what do we do now? We don't physically sacrifice anything. It's been done, but we memorialize it. We take communion, but we're remembering what he did. There are many things. You can look at Matthew chapter 4 and the three temptations of Jesus. If you study that out intensely, you'll notice that every one of those goes back to something that the Israelites got wrong. So they physically acted wrong. Jesus spiritually, in a way, undoes that, what they had done. He got it right where they got it wrong. There's a lot of that. Why does this matter? Well, Romans 12 tells us something. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the, that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So here are big words that we often glaze over. But present your bodies a what? Living sacrifice. So don't kill yourself. You don't have to do that. You're living, but what do you got to be? You need to be holy and acceptable. What did every sacrifice in the Old Testament have to be? Holy, meaning set apart, and acceptable means there is a certain way this thing needs to look without spot and blemish, and there's different animals. And do you realize that we are the same way? Every time we speak, it should be words of holiness, things that we bring to God. We have no choice in the matter but to live our lives as a living sacrifice. Somebody needs to be willing to live for God, not just talk. There's a big difference there. Let's look at John chapter 4. I want to show you something here. Because we've got to begin to understand this. 
that physically they sacrifice, but we don't do that now. Because this has all been taken care of. That burnt offering was given by Jesus, taken outside the camp. The shame was put upon him. We now receive that spiritually. We are made new spiritually. In John chapter 4, he's dealing with the Samaritan woman. You guys are probably familiar with this story. I'm not going to read a bunch of this, but I want you to see here. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, this is interesting, because you've got to understand the context here. What is a Samaritan? Well, Samaritans were looked upon as like half-Jews. During the time the different exiles, they'd been a different part. They kind of had a mixed race, but they worshipped Yahweh. They didn't necessarily worship false God. And it says, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain, and catch the last part, nor in Jerusalem, worship the Father. Now that's interesting, because how did one worship God? You went to the temple. You brought the sacrifice. That's how you did it. It's the only way you could do it. What had happened is he's referring to on this mountain is Mount Gerizim. This is where the Samaritans had a high place of which they would go and sacrifice. And do you know why that was? Because they didn't like Jerusalem. That's where those Jews are. And we're not like them. We're better than them. And the Jews looked at the Samaritans and said the same thing. So on that mountain, nor in Jerusalem, you will worship the Father. Now that's interesting. Because why is that? How is that? Physically, they had to go there to worship, but what happens now? Where's the temple today? You're looking at it. All around you. You see, now, when you worship, you worship anywhere you want because you are this temple. You begin to see things get unpacked throughout the Old Testament. This is a principle I want to show you guys today. I've talked about this several years ago, but it often gets under overlooked, not even underlooked. It often gets overlooked when it comes to the idea of worship. So in order to explain this, we're going to start talking about King Solomon. Because there's a point in here that I want you to get. What do we know about Solomon? Solomon was a good dude. He did all of this stuff, and God gives him an opportunity. Ask me what you will. Now watch what he says. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. This is right after a bunch of battles had taken place. It says, now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. And I'm going to stop for a second. Was he supposed to do that? Nope. Then he brought her to the city of David until he'd finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. Now, how were they doing it before? The tabernacle. The tabernacle moved. So these people would go to these high places to sacrifice, established places, high place could literally be a high place. It was something elevated. It could just be a bunch of rocks. It could be something like that. It could be elaborate, but it was just something that was higher. So they sacrificed at the high places because there was no place else for them to go. And Solomon loved the Lord. And he walked in the statues of his father David, except, what did he do? He sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. So apparently God was not impressed with this. So these are things he wasn't doing right. Now, verse 4, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Okay, burnt offering. Did he have to? 
No. What is he doing? He's showing his gratefulness to God. That's what a burnt offering was. He's doing this voluntarily because he loves the Lord. Verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask, what shall I give you? Wouldn't you love it if God showed up to you in a dream? Listen, ask me for anything that you want. What does that sound like? It's the genie in the lamp. You got three wishes, baby. What do you want to do? What's the first thing everybody wishes for? More wishes. That's right. See, y'all have been watching movies. Verse 6, Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne. He's referring to himself, as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. That's a big statement. Your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now, what did he say? Why did he want this? He said, I do not know how to go out or to come in. Now, how many of you guys have read this and never even asked the question, well, what does that even mean? That would be most of us, if that's fair. We never stop and ask, well, what does he mean by going out and coming in? There's a principle in this that we have to understand. But what Solomon recognized very early on, remember, he was young when he took over, is that I don't know how to do this, God. I need wisdom on how to handle this. So let's go to Numbers chapter 27. This is Moses. He's kind of getting ready to, you know, go down river, so to speak. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Do you see the same thing here again? We see the same concept, something about going out and coming in. And Moses is very concerned because he's praying, he's speaking to the Lord. When you set my replacement... I pray that it is somebody who can go out before them and come in before them. He's praying about this man, whoever it is. And so we have to kind of understand something. That this seems to be a very crucial part of what they're doing under this time. Now let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 31. Verse 1, it says, Then Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also, the Lord has said to me, you should not cross over this Jordan. You see, the reason he's beginning to retire, so to speak, is he's old. He's 120. At 120, do whatever you want. Eat whatever you want. I don't care what the doctor says. Like my wife's grandmother, who just passed away at 99, but they were always complaining, because you know what she lived on? hostess she had these snack cakes everywhere i'm like the woman has lived this long let her go out swinging do what you want clog them arteries baby whatever doesn't matter so at 120 what's he say i need a replacement because i cannot go out and i cannot come in this is why he's retiring so let's look at this because the key to this and understanding this ultimately is in joshua chapter 14 verse 11 as yet as i am strong of this day as of the day that moses sent me Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. So what does this have to do with? This is an art of war. 
Now, to understand going out and coming in, this is ultimately a military term. Solomon knew that this is something that his father knew. Moses knew that this is something that whoever is going to lead the people needs to be able to do, needs to be able to know. But in Joshua 14, 11, we see it, but let's pick up the context of this. Because this is Caleb talking. And you have to understand something about Caleb. Caleb was one of the original 12 spies that spied out the land. And back when they were at Kadesh Barnea, there were two people that came with a good report. Joshua being one, the other being Caleb. Now watch what Joshua says. Joshua, or in Joshua, what Caleb says. Joshua 14, verse 6. Then the children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. Let me understand, or let me get you something here. If you understand what took place in Kadesh Barnea, the book of Hebrews will come alive to you. Because that is what the central point is around it. That's a reference to it all the time. Verse 7, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. And what was that word? Let's take the land. God's promised it. Let's go. It was a small percentage there. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. If we could find some more people like this today. You see, what took place there is two people stood on the promise of God. Hey, God said that's ours. Let's go take it. I don't care how big they are. Ten people came back and convinced everybody else. But two people did what? They came back and spoke what was in their heart. They brought back the word that was in their heart. And he said, I wholly followed the Lord my God. So he brings back this report. Verse 9. So Moses swore on that day saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive as he said these 45 years. Ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness and now here I am this day 85 years old. So 45 to 85, the spread is 40. Good. You guys are awesome. As yet, I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and coming in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there. Remember, the Anakim were a race of the giants. And that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be able to drive them out as the Lord said. Now, look what he did. We begin to understand the principle of going out and coming in. It's a, it's a battle term. It's dealing with war specifically. But what was the war? It wasn't arbitrary. The war was taking what was rightfully given to them by God. It's their positioning. And when he went up there the first time, he brought back the word that was in his heart that let's take the land. But everybody else was convinced by the naysayers. They saw the same thing. They experienced the same miracles leaving Egypt. All of them were there. Why would anybody doubt God? Because miracles may not convince you. In the moment, we go back to where we lie. And here you had two people of faith saying, no, God said we can have this. It's ours. Let's take it. But they didn't want to do it. So he lost the vote. But here he is later. He said, I am just as strong today at 85 as I was at 45. Therefore, let's take it. 
The Lord will be with me. I will drive them out, just as the Lord has said. What was he relying on? Not his own strength. The promise of God. You see, unlike many folks, he not only said it, but lived it. He lived his life in a way. What he said was one thing. But he's willing to go out and drive these people. But the Anakim were there, and the cities were great and fortified. I don't care. It doesn't matter. God said that's ours. Let's go take it. Every time, this is the principle that I want you to catch, this going out and coming in. It took a boldness to do this. But every time that they would come in from war, where do you think the first place that they would go? They'd always come back to the tabernacle. Many times bringing sacrifice. It was a time of worship. They would be thanking God for their victory. They would do it during wars. They would do it during all sorts of times. The leaders would tell them that, listen, you need a break. You need to come back. And they would come back. And the first place that they would go most of the time, remember, they didn't always get everything right, is they would come back and they would worship God with an offering or a sacrifice of some sort. There are instances in the Bible where they would come home and they wouldn't even sleep in their own homes, but on the doorstep because they didn't want to be totally consecrated to God. They didn't want to anything to go wrong or to distract them because God was the one who was leading them. And we need to understand this. You see, we need to be in the presence of God, not just when we come together, but every single day. When we walk outside of our house, we're now entering into a figurative battlefield. But remember, who is my enemy? We haven't talked about that yet, but this all ties together. This is a principle that every believer needs to understand. Worshiping God is not singing a few songs, but it's an entering into His presence. The going out is not from His presence, but with His presence. Somehow, we've got the idea that if we come here, God will move. If we come here, the presence of God will be here. But the presence of God is with us everywhere, should be with us everywhere everywhere so they would come in to refresh to worship and they would go out equipped ready to battle you see this is the principle that we have missed out on the going out and the coming in now let's drill on this a little bit further in first samuel chapter 18 this is saul dealing with david now watch what happens here we start in verse 12 it says now saul was afraid of david because the lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So why was he afraid? The presence of God was with David. It was no longer with Saul. And Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. So what happens when the presence of God lifted from Saul? Well, let's get rid of the guy with the presence of God on him. David behaved wisely in all his ways. And the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because, why? He went out and came in before them. You see, it was the responsibility of a king who was the leader of the people to go out and lead them and then also lead them in the charge back home to prepare worship. And you can trace this out in many, many different ways. We're not going to do that for time's sake. But the thing is, we've got to understand something, is that this was the responsibility of the kings. They were supposed to go do this. The leaders of Israel were supposed to go do this. We all are now what? We all are kings and priests. We are to be going out and coming in. But you look at David, and you see what happened here. He went out, and the people loved him. He brought him back. He was a good leader. But he wasn't always a good leader. 
you know, we know the story of what happened with Bathsheba, right? Do you know why that happened? Watch this. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, what would have happened if he had been doing his biblical mandate to go out before his people? It said it's at the time when the kings go out to war, lead their people. He stayed home. He sent somebody in his stead. If David had been where he was supposed to be, would this event ever have taken place? No, it would not have. You see, we are not designed to simply be a reservoir of worship to God, this presence of God. We are designed to be an outflow of the presence of God. There's a principle that goes on here of the going out and coming in. When we come in together, we are worshiping God together. We are sharpening one another. We are praying together. We are in the presence of the Lord. We are getting equipped with the Word together. We're doing all of these things, but it's for one purpose. It's the going out, and that's where we're not good. We can come in because our whole lives we have been trained this way. We think we come to church, and this is where the miracles happen, and this is where God moves and all of that, and there is truth to some of that, but it's when you take the presence of God with you and you go out. Some of the wildest stories I've ever heard of ministries around the world and in the United States were from people who did what they call street ministry. And I don't mean like standing on a soapbox and yelling out, the end is near, all of that kind of stuff. Although there's some of that. I'm talking about people who everyday life take that presence of God with them and they just pray for people. You see it in the New Testament. When Peter was crossing by and people were bringing him out that a shadow might fall on them and heal them, was Peter out doing anything special? No, he was walking. And the presence of God was so strong. But we've lost that. We have this worship and witness tied together. You see, living our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, is not a Sunday morning task. It's an everyday task task it's what we do with our time task the things that we're going to answer to god for task and so i want to show you a little bit of this in in, in the new testament in luke chapter 14 there's this parable that takes place it's the parable of the great supper you're probably familiar with it but i want to show you something here luke chapter 14 verse 15 it says now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things he said to him blessed is he who shall eat the bread in the kingdom of god and he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. And the first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came to report of the things to the master, and the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you have commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Now, there's a lot that's going on here, but this is interesting to me. 
Because as I'm reading this, I'm looking at like, what? They're invited to something that would not happen normally. First of all, a marriage supper was a big deal. People would be invited. It was a big deal. But this seems to be somebody of great wealth because he has servants that he's sending to make this happen. Now, your everyday person does not have the opportunity to go to a person of great wealth. Don't think today. Think back then. And they would not be invited because you wouldn't be able to dress right or all this kind of stuff. You didn't have the proper attire to be in their presence. And so when he goes to the first one, what's he say? Well, first of all, verse 18, they with one accord all made excuses. We could spend all day there. But he says, well, I bought a piece of ground. I must go and see it. So I ask that you have me excuse. Who buys ground without looking at it? Like, that's really dumb. You ever bought a house? I'm like, I've never been in it, but I went ahead and bought it. I think it's going to be sweet. No. Look at the next one. I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to test them. You still go and look? You looked. You didn't test them out beforehand? Like, these are stupid excuses. The last one's my favorite. I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Mama not letting you out of the house no more? I mean, what's the story here? Like, this is stupid. But here they are, invited to something, and they can't, or they won't. You see, the thing is, is we've got to understand, is the going out and coming in was a physical thing that took place. But spiritually speaking, we talk about worship. What is the role of a believer? The role of a believer is to know Christ and make him known. That's what we do. How we do that is a reflection of this living sacrifice aspect. That as we preach the gospel, signs will follow. That aspect. That our lives are a reflection of him. That the fruit of our lips are giving thanks and praise to God every single day. And so the things that we take in matter and the things that we put out matter. And when we come together, we come together with one accord to do what? worship to be equipped to be prepared to do what to go back out because who is my enemy it's not anything physical it's these spiritual aspects and we have to be careful that we don't get caught up in the minutia of what's going on we've got to understand this like this was such a big deal to them that they would not bring in a leader that did not know how to do it. It was such a big deal to Solomon that he knew he didn't know how to do it. God, I need wisdom on how to handle this. And yet we just take it for granted. We just kind of blase show up, we'll sing a few songs, we'll get into the Word, we'll do these things. But what happens if our lives begin to reflect God every day, every moment, everything we say and do? What happens then? What happens is if we were to begin as we come out and we're like, okay, God, man, you're so good and I'm so grateful to you and I, I just thank you for all that you've done for me. And because of that, I'm going to be obedient to your word. And today, I'm going to talk to somebody. I'm going to look for somebody to talk to. And tomorrow, I'm going to look for somebody to talk to. And, and on Tuesday, I'm going to look for somebody to talk to. And when somebody calls me and says they're not feeling very well, I'm going to go pray for that person. And I am just going to be an outflow of the presence of God everywhere I go. What transforms our lives more than that? Nothing. It's simple obedience, but it's an understanding of what God has done. And so as we continue this, we need to begin to think of this. How do we worship God? We worship Him, living our lives as a living sacrifice before Him. Holy and acceptable in the way that He wants us to. Not the way that we want to, 
Because it's not about us. It's about Him. And we've got to begin to change the way that we look at things. So let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You, Lord, that in all things, in all things, You have made us new. And Lord, we repent of the things of which we've missed it. We repent of the things of which we've come up short. We repent of the things of which You have clearly shown us and we have refused to listen. Where we've made excuses. Where we have not been obedient to Your Word. Where we've not been obedient to Your commands. Where we've not been obedient to Your callings, Lord. We repent. And Lord, I pray that You quicken our hearts that we will stop making excuses of why we can't or why we won't but, Lord, that we will simply be an overflow and outflow of your presence, of your power, of your goodness, of your truth, Lord. Every day. And, Lord, I thank you that you are moving in our hearts. And I thank you that you are opening doors of opportunity. That we will not take this time for granted and we will not take it lightly. But we will go into the greater things that you have called us to do. And the greater things that you have set aside for us, Lord. And that you will be glorified in every aspect of our life. Every word we speak, every action we take will be an abundance of the overflow of gratitude that we have. And the fruit of our lips giving thanks to who you are. Because you have been so merciful and compassionate and good to us, Lord. May we never lose sight of who you are. Lord, we thank you for all things. And we give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday.